So it's probably a tribute to you, Jeremy, that I was like, several passages I wanted to preach on tonight, and I couldn't settle in, and, uh, but I've chosen one that I'm kind of excited about, and I appreciate this passage a whole lot in terms of pastoral ministry, and really in terms of leadership throughout the church. So 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 17. And then we'll do chapter 4, 1 through 18. Very precious portion of scripture that I'm sure has encouraged a number of you in your walks with Christ and your ministry and service to Christ in this, this fallen world. So 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 17, first. God's word. When I came to Troas, Paul speaking, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. In chapter four, well, we're reading the whole chapter. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let, us, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. Jump down to verse 16. 
So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Glorious portion of God's word, glorious. And to think that we get to tell people about that. So Corinth was a tough place to do ministry. It was just a hard place. It had everything. Um, Our country gets tougher in a number of ways. We have a lot of challenges to do ministry. So the question is, uh, do we panic? Do we despair? Do we retreat from the world? Do we accommodate our message to be more attractive? And of course, none of those options are our route. So the church in Corinth faced all kinds of opposition. It had all the bad stuff, all kind of sexual immorality, materialism, secularism, relativism, cynicism, violence, and social disintegration. It just had it all. Incredible mix of, of just cultural decay, personal disintegration, a desperate place. Yet Paul didn't panic, he didn't despair, he didn't retreat, he didn't accommodate. Even better, God didn't. God's the one that sent him there. In fact, God told Paul, don't be afraid, I have many in this city. Speak the gospel and don't be silent. And so what do we do before a decaying world? And the answer that 2 Corinthians gives us is that God will use his word and spirit through the Christian ministry. That's how he's gonna change our world. Something that on the surface looks so futile and irrelevant in the minds of many is actually what God uses to change our world. The Christian ministry, be it a pastoral ministry, be it the other leadership nurture that's present in a local body of believers. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says, we preach the gospel, we're not silent. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God to change a life. 1 Corinthians 2 would say it this way, I came, brothers, not with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And yet Paul says a lot of other things, but it's always filtered through that. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, 2 Corinthians 2.17 that we just read is a beautiful passage. It says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak of Christ. And so that idea of peddling is an interesting word picture because it comes from tavern keeping that the wine seller would deceive his customers by mixing wine with water, letting it go further, not getting them the full deal, the real deal. And so Paul's saying, look, we're commissioned to preach the full-on unfiltered gospel, the whole counsel of God, the freeness of his grace and the way his grace changes us in our lives. And we're not holding back. 
So Paul's aim to persuade the Corinthians that this good news is the good news that really we're longing for and everybody's longing for deep down inside though we chase after a host of other things to fill that void, to meet that need. There's a sweetness we're after that's only given in the sweetness of the gospel. And yet, one of the things 2 Corinthians does so beautifully is that it shows that it's not just a disembodied gospel as if words could come through a loudspeaker. The gospel is words, it's a proclamation of a message, but it tends to transform families, cities, nations as it's spoken through a human personality being affected and changed by that gospel. That's how God tends to work. Dr. Kelly in his beautiful little treatment of 2 Corinthians called New Life in the Wasteland says this, the Christian ministry's effectiveness is that the gospel becomes translated into flesh and blood and that has a way of beginning to transform an entire nation. That is how the West became Christian. Translated, like you translate from Chinese into English. It's translated through the living and breathing of a real human being who was lost and is found, who was guilt-ridden and now is free, and his life is changing. And he's starting to look as a signpost pointing to the sacrifice of Christ himself. So Dr. Kelly would say it this way, and I love this little phrase. He says, our lives start breathing and manifesting the atmosphere of a different world. So what does that look like and what does that mean, Jeremy, for you and for us? I have three words. Prisoner, perfume, and pottery. Notice they all begin with P. I know you love that. All right, so Paul has just arrived and he's, uh, he's been hunting for Titus and like, he really wanted to find Titus in Troas. They set it up, they had a meet. And the reason being that Titus had gone to visit the believers in Corinth and was supposed to meet Paul with an update. And there's all kinds of problems going on with the believers in Corinth and Paul is just wound up, anxious, worried, In fact, they have not treated him well. They're critical of him, negative towards him, believing the worst. He's just worried about their faith, where they stand. So one of the big reasons that he says, look, I had this open door for ministry, but I couldn't keep staying in Troas preaching the gospel because my spirit was not settled and I had to go search for Titus. Part of the reason is that we see that angst and that burden to... to to know how these believers he loved so much were doing. To heal that breach, to to correct them where they needed it, to comfort them when they needed it. It's this overwhelming, this love and desire and commitment to them that we see in Paul. He just wasn't settled until he got news about them. So he shares that, and then immediately when he talks about how low and kind of in the dumps he is, verse 14, he leads us on this lengthy digression, which is this wonderful digression. Paul's beautiful with that. He bends language and rules in order to expound the mystery and the wonder of the gospel, and he goes on this digression, which is priceless. And the reason he goes on this digression so naturally is that as 
discouraged as he is, he's not dismayed because of his faith in Jesus that always shows him that though he can't see it, he's, he's, he's victorious in him. And so he goes, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And so the, the symbolism is of a Roman military parade. And so if you can just imagine a Roman general going out against the barbarians and having this huge battle and this successful general of the army, he returns to Rome after his victory in battle and there's this huge parade. Everybody's lining the streets, welcoming this military general into Rome again. The whole city turns out. It's a huge deal. Tens of thousands lining the street, throwing flowers. If you saw Gladiator, they're throwing flowers. They're burning incense. And in this triumphal train, he has these captives that are dressed up in their native costumes to show like what an impressive victory he won. They're his spoils of war and he did it for Rome and he leads them through this parade, incense burning, flowers being strewn, these captives he's leading. And so even today, if you go to Rome, you go to the Arch of Titus, which has these carvings of Jews being led into Rome in triumphal procession in chains. And so the first word I want to leave with you, Jeremy, is prisoner. And really to all of us. That Paul knew he was Christ's captive. And he was Jesus' prisoner. He believed himself to be taken, to be conquered by the most successful, victorious military general ever. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Colossians 2 says it this way, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them at the cross. That's why he came. Jesus conquered by paying the penalty for our sin. Luke describes it this way, as, he's talk, as Jesus is talking and he said, Jesus is the stronger man that invades and plunders the house of the strong man to release those held in bondage. He does that by paying the price of our sin. Such that Romans 8 could say it this way, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul uses this imagery again in Ephesians 4. And in Ephesians 4, he pictures the same parade. This military general is entering and climbing the mountain to the temple in Rome. And, you know, again, the crowds are lining the streets, there's fragrance, there's incense, but he goes a step further, quoting Psalm 68, and it says, when he, this general, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And now the captives, who he's leading in triumphal procession, are also given to significant dignitaries of the city so that they can serve them. And so he says he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. They're given to the church to serve the church. Paul has a sense that not only is he a, a, a prisoner of Christ, freed from the devil and the condemnation of sin to be like owned by Jesus, 
But then he's also given as a gift to the church to serve the church and point them to such a triumphal military general. And so Paul, even when he can't understand what's going on, like he's disturbed over Titus and over Corinth, that seems the weight of the world's on his shoulders. He's so concerned about the church, people he knows and loves that he doesn't know where they're straying away from Jesus. That pastoral heart he has, he goes, well, I'm in your triumphal procession, you've given me as a gift to the church, and you're just dragging me along to be useful in the lives of others, and even though my spirit is not at rest, I know it is a triumphal procession. You're gonna accomplish your work. Prisoner, perfume, second. And so in this triumphal procession, there's also all kinds of flowers and incense and fragrance. It actually smells good. A a bunch of soldiers are now smelling good because of this scent and the aroma of everything going on. So Paul says in verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Dr. Kelly would say, we are the perfume of God, or better said, the Holy Spirit operating through us as the perfume of God. So you just think about it. Like joined to Christ by faith, God's spirit joins the heart of the believer to the very heart of God. It's like a channel connecting us to the glory and the nature of God. And he brings all of God's marvelous perfections, as many as it can be communicated to a human personality, especially his Trinitarian love. Dr. Kelly describes it this way, which I love, is the blissful fellowship of love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now flowing down into us. His own resplendent light, holiness, purity, righteousness, filling and shining through us to others, such that 2 Corinthians 3, 18 would say, and we with unveiled faces are reflecting the Lord's glory, being transformed into this image with one degree of glory to another. What a verse. And so there's this sense in which the believer, the, the gospel gives us this deep sense of humility and realism and this unbounding gratefulness and this incredible sacrificial love for people. And that's the work of the Spirit in our life, which Paul says is just this aroma, this scent, this fragrance. A dear friend of ours that labored with us for about a year in Peru, Clara Kim, went back to work with Redeemer in New York City, she, she posted this beautiful tribute to, to Tim Keller. And she says this about him. She says, what can I say about Tim Keller? The man saved me and countless others of my generation from losing our faith. He once said in the middle of a sermon, I'm a cynic, a lot of you are too, and that's probably why you're here. He was honest, he knew if he had an ounce of hypocrisy or ego, we would sniff it out and leave. And I was studying this passage about the fragrance of Christ and saying, that's it, you know, it's hypocrisy and ego when we have to patch up ourselves and we don't have such a gospel that knows us to the depths and loves us to the heights. And she goes on to say how that affected him and what attracted her back to the gospel. She said he was committed, he led 
a Bible study for lesbians. He did panels with atheists and Muslims. I first met Tim when I was a sophomore at NYU and was one of about six members of our local campus crusade for Christ. We invited him to come deliver his talk, Losing My Religion at NYU. I wrote him a letter and met him outside. He said, good letter, and recognized me for years to come from that night. He spoke bravely before a sometimes hostile audience. I later learned that he met one-on-one with a friend of at NYU who was a Buddhist. The unconvinced were the people he was most eager to spend time with. At the end of the day, aside from his sermons which shaped everything from my faith to my marriage to my suffering, that's what I'll remember, he pursued people. Beneath his calm, objective exterior, he would read voraciously, listen endlessly, and walk into all kinds of spaces where he was not wanted to win you over. And he did it all to point you to a faith more beautiful and richer than you probably knew was possible. He was a real deal and I will always be grateful to him. That's something of what's going on here in this aroma of Christ, the humility, honesty, love for others that breathes out because of the cross. And notice this, the aroma of Christ, it's his fragrance, which for us is like, a breath of fresh air, why would it be the fragrance of death to others? Because alongside the gospel is something that really confronts us that's very uncomfortable and it's that we're just not good. Like we're not good. Our manners aren't good, our customs aren't good, our rules aren't good, our hearts aren't good. And it's hard to take, it feels like death. But this gospel that confronts us with our own sin is good news for us and it produces a totally different kind of character in those who can rest and receive Christ alone in the gospel. Jeremy, we see some of that in you, that aroma of Christ, the honesty of the gospel, the love for others, and we appreciate that. I appreciate that. Last one is pottery. Uh, so 318 again talks about us being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we look at the face of Christ. And um, Paul calls us these jars of clay. It's, it's a wonderful expression that such a valuable treasure would be housed in something so ordinary, common, rudden of the mill, breakable. It shows us that the power doesn't belong to us, but to Christ, which really takes the burden off. It's like what John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. Jeremy, you don't have to be Jesus to people, you bring Jesus to people. So Matthew Henry relates that jars of clay references Gideon out of Judges 7. And so if you remember that little story, God reduces Gideon's army down to 300, you remember? This host of Midianites camped throughout the valley and God keeps whittling them down to their 300 and then his tactic of warfare is ridiculous. A trumpet in one hand and a torch in the other and he puts the, each, each soldier puts the torch inside this clay jar. It has enough oxygen to keep burning and yet not show light to the Midianites. And then at a signal, they all break the jars, show the torches and sound the trumpets and the Midianites are thrown into confusion once they break the jars. And before they break the jars, the light doesn't shine. 
And so Matthew Henry that says that is Christian ministry. That the pattern of Christian ministry is that the light of the gospel shines as the jars are broken. So what Paul is dealing with, this angst over the church, it's painful to him, but God uses that angst over the church to actually cause the light of the gospel to shine more clearly and beautifully and wonderfully. And so in our lives, when we are broken by our own sin, by the difficulties of life in general, and ministry in particular, instead of becoming dismayed or discouraged, we think right here in this crucible, the jar's broken and the light's escaping. And that's really the purpose of it. And, um, well, we're running out of time. So in the brokenness, just know the light's shining. It's an incredible encouragement to me. Prisoner, perfume, and pottery. Pottery. 